for as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is Unveiling Jesus Christ. Hello. Welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet. I am your host on this podcast, as always. This week we're going to be talking about uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, which consists of a call for the Ephesians to repent for leaving their first love. Now, last week, you'll recall, we talked about Revelation 2, 1 through 3, in which the Ephesian saints were commended because they were basically opposed to some false apostles that had come in teaching false doctrines. They tried them uh, like good lawyers would, I'm sure, and uh, found that these uh, apostles were liars. And so uh, that was the good news. This week, we learned that the Ephesians are somewhat lacking in uh, their attributes, and uh, they have left their first love. So this is definitely not going to be a romantic comedy. It's more, going to be more like a uh, Shakespearean tragedy, such as uh, Romeo and Juliet. They, we have a first love that has somehow died within the Ephesian church. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today with the goal ultimately and hopefully that we can learn from the lessons of the past and uh, not lose our first love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we begin with uh, Revelation chapter 2 verse 4 which says, quote, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Close quote. So in our podcast last week where I discussed Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, Christ commended the Ephesians in those verses for trying and rejecting false apostles and their, their doctrines. And so check out my podcast from January 28 uh, covering those verses. Now here the tables have turned a little bit. So despite the commendations that Jesus had for the saints in Ephesus, he also now says, I have somewhat against you. Uh, and the reason he has something against the Ephesians is because they left Christ, who is their first love. And what that essentially means is they have lost their strong and ardent affection for God and Christ and for sacred things. So when we're talking about a first love in particular, we're really talking about the kind of devotion that you see in new converts to the church and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have this sort of fervent and personal um, and uninhibited and excited, openly displayed love and affection for the Savior and the gospel teachings. And, you know, they're just, they have excitement written all over their face. It's, a, it's this kind of uh, honeymoon kind of love, right? Um, when you get to the point where you get beyond that uh, and you say, well, I guess the honeymoon is over. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's that's the way it is with my wife when uh you know we've been married for 40 years but if she does something that uh she knows i'm not going to like uh you know i don't know it's something she tries to feed me something uh, carrots cook carrots you know it's not my favorite okay but uh, she tries to spring some uh uh cooked carrots on me <laughs> Uh, the the common response to something like that was well I guess the honeymoon is over isn't it <laughs> and so but anyway you get the idea of what I'm talking about but it for the uh, Ephesian saints the 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 honeymoon period began of course with Paul's teachings in during his third missionary journey um, in about 53 AD and uh, you know we're now 90 years 40 years beyond that in 96 AD and so we're now talking about second generation Ephesians who are members of the church and they're not feeling uh, the same kind of love for the gospel that those original saints felt when first uh, presented with it by the Apostle Paul. Now when we're talking about love we need to understand that uh, this is a, a concept that Paul repeatedly talks about with reference to the Ephesians. In fact, he uses the word love more than 20 times in his references to the type of love that is and should be exhibited by the saints of God. And the type of love that he's talking about is uh, from the Greek uh, word agape. The Hebrew version of that would be ahaba. But at any rate, this is a, a divine kind of love. It is charity. It's the pure love of Christ as described in Moroni chapter 7 verse 47 where Mormon tells us that without this charity, this agape kind of love, we are nothing. Um, and in Moroni 10.21, it says uh, that if you don't have charity, which is the pure love of Christ, you can in no wise be saved in the kingdom of God. And so uh, in a dictionary sense, this is a kind of a universal love. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40 exhibits this type of love and what is required, saying, quote, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love, that is agape, thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang, or is the foundation for, all the law and the prophets, close quote. So you'll notice here that it, there's this reference to the law and the prophets. To just clarify the meaning of that, there are essentially three divisions in the Old Testament. The first part consists of the first five books of Moses, which is known as the Torah. That is what the Savior was referring to when he referred to the law in Matthew chapter 22. The second type of uh, part of the uh, Old Testament are the prophetical books of both major and minor prophets. And when we're talking about major prophets, you know, the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, the heavy hitters. And then there are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Essentially, the last 12 books of the Old Testament are considered to be the minor prophets, not minor in the sense that their teachings were less than desirable or uh, not quite up to snuff. They're just 
minor in the sense that their books are relatively short um, and they are not so well known as those that we would call the major prophets. So this is what uh, the Savior was referring to again in Matthew chapter 22. Now there's still another third part of the Old Testament that it's either uh, the law, it's the prophets, or it's essentially everything else. <laughs> so those are the three divisions in the uh, the Old Testament. Now notice here that essentially we're talking about the type of love that we are supposed to have toward the Lord and similarly the type of love that we need to exhibit toward our neighbor, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And that's, that's charity. That's the kind of universal love that uh, John is describing the Ephesians as having lost in his discussion here in uh, Revelation chapter 2. So this type of love means that we are interested in a person's welfare and happiness. We have compassion. We go out of our way to do things that would please others. And it's a type of selflessness. All of these are different kinds of ways to describe this concept of uh, charity. Now, let me give you another illustration of this. In John chapter 21, 15, it says, quote, so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Close quote. Now you recall the uh, context for this verse was after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the 12 apostles had kind of just gone their separate ways a little bit, gone back to some of their old professions and uh, returned to Galilee to do fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this was the occasion when the Savior appeared to them. Uh, they had a meal together with some of the fish that uh, Peter and others had caught while fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And after they had eaten, that's when Jesus essentially asked Peter, he says, Lovest thou me more than these? Referring to the fish that had been cooked on an open fire there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And the type of love that Jesus was asking Peter about is agape love. Do you have greater affection, I mean deep abiding love in a bunch of fish <laughs> than you have in me? Uh, and so Jesus, Peter, of course, is insistent that he loves the Lord, and the Lord says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Okay, and that's how Peter would truly demonstrate his agape type of love if he would be willing to feed the lambs and feed the sheep rather than pursuing his professional life and career catching fish on the Sea of Galilee because, after all, Peter had become a fisher of men at the time of the Savior's call. And so what we find now is a group of second-generation Christians among the uh, Ephesians who are not demonstrating this type of love. They were not feeding the flock. They were not feeding the lambs. They were not feeding the sheep. They had kind of gone through... Uh, mechanically performing duties in their church. Yes, good for them. They had opposed the teachings of false apostles. They had done their best to allow uh, for, not allow for the teachings of uh, false teachers to come into their midst. But at the same time, they really hadn't gone out of their way to shepherd and what we would call minister 
to the members of the church. And so while they were doing some things well, uh, this was something that they were not doing uh, so well. So uh, had the, the gospel, in a very real sense, had ceased to be for them a labor of love as Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 1 through 3. They had retained the purity of doctrine by rejecting these false apostles, but they were lacking in deep devotion. And so this lack of love was demonstrated in their outward labors. It means that essentially they didn't wholly abandon Christ. Uh, they, they, they hadn't forsaken the Savior. They were not estranged from him by any means, but they had cooled in their spiritual affections toward Christ such that they really didn't demonstrate any zeal. They were in church on Sunday, but that's pretty much the extent of their devotion. If I can put it in blistering real terms today, it is those who show up for church on Sunday, but they're really not willing to minister in the gospel today. That's hard on all of us, right? None of us are perfect ministers, but uh, as, as I said uh, last week, you know, we have to liken these scriptures to ourselves, and the whole purpose why the Savior spent all this time talking about these problems that exist in the ancient churches because they foreshadow the same type of conditions that exist in the church today. And so this is one of those uncomfortable truths that exists in the church in our time, just as it uncomfortably existed in the church at the time of the Ephesians. So before you jump down the throats of the Ephesians, say, you Ephesians, how could you possibly uh, lose your zeal and your ardent love for the Savior? Uh, be careful, because uh, you can see in them a lot of us, including the concept of uh, ministering in the church today. Now, this, this lack of zeal, the lack of love, uh, it's kind of uh, neglectful and a lack of complete devotion. One of the ways that I can kind of explain it is from my uh, career as an attorney, as a legal malpractice practitioner. In other words, I sued other lawyers as a matter of uh, course for many, many years because they failed to perform well for their clients. They did something that was wrong and, and caused injury to their clients or to the cases of their clients. Now, what is always present in a legal malpractice case like this is there has to be a determination or finding that the lawyer who is the defendant in the case has breached the standard of care. That is, their actions or their conduct in some means fell below what we call the standard of care. And the standard of care among lawyers is that um, the lawyer whose conduct is under question uh, did something that was below what the average practitioner would do in the same or similar circumstances. And I kind of liken this to, uh, they get a letter of C. So C is basically an average grade. And if a lawyer uh, performs above the standard of care, it means he's doing at least a letter grade of C, an average work for the client. Now, lawyers don't have to be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know everybody already knows that. I said, yeah, we got that. We know none of them are perfect. Okay, given, uh, point taken. And so, but 
a lawyer doesn't cause injury to his client and is not liable to the client unless he performs with a letter grade of C or less, less than C. Like C minus, yeah, you fell below the standard of care, but if you're above a C, then you acted within the standard of care, you're not negligent. Below, negligent. Above, not negligent. All right, so if we kind of use the same standard now with the devotion of the Ephesian saints in their love of God, essentially the Ephesians at the time of Christ, at the time of John's revelation are getting a letter grade below C. They they weren't wholly terrible, um, but they're just not performing above average, if we can kind of put it in that sense. They're just they're just average is is what essentially they are. Um, you know, and someone it's, when I was in college always used to say, well, C's are degrees. Well, not in the kingdom of God, because yeah, the 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 C is is something that uh, is kind of better than a D. But uh, if you really want to get to the celestial kingdom, if you want to achieve exaltation, you really have to be getting higher letter grades of A. All right, that's what we need to be working for. So in a sense, the Ephesians are like a disaffected wife, uh, recognizing the analogy. Uh, and the true gospel principle that the church is espoused to Jesus Christ. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. We are. We have a an, a, an espoused relationship. And uh, the problem is is that they have become disaffected because there's the lo- love has been lost in the marriage. And sometimes, uh, and I don't think this is a horrible criticism, but just a point of observation. Think of Mary and Martha, who had this great love for the Savior. They both loved him. But uh, when Martha would busy herself doing all kinds of uh, work for the Savior, and didn't really just spend time to love him like Mary did, and Mary complained because Martha's, you know, Mary or Martha complained to Mary because Mary's just kind of sitting around listening to the Savior and they're talking, and and she feels like I'm doing all the work, um, and uh, so Martha was so busy working for Christ that she didn't take time to fully love Him, and sometimes we go through the mechanics of living the gospel without also taking the time to fully love him. We we act not necessarily out of charitable interest, but out of just some sense of duty. Um, so be careful of the Martha syndrome also. And that's not a harsh criticism of Martha. Um, sometimes we also all have to be a, a little bit of Martha and have some Martha in her, but we also need the Mary part of us as well. Um, and uh, essentially in the concept or in the context of a, a wife and her love for her husband uh, and vice versa, um, essentially we have the Ephesians who loved her husband Christ, the bridegroom, Lest, but we're not wholly unfaithful to him. I, I find an interesting uh, quote in something that President Spencer W. Kimball said in uh, the conference from uh, October 1962. He said, quote, There are those married people who permit their eyes to wander and their hearts to become vagrant, who think it is not improper to flirt a little, to share their hearts, and have desire for someone other than the wife or the husband. The Lord says in no uncertain terms, Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shalt cleave unto her and none else. 
close quote. So essentially what we have there in the statement of uh, President Kimball is a very real world situation, but it has its spiritual application to our relationship with the Savior. Are we as are one who we tend to flirt a little bit with with evil, uh, to flirt a little bit with uh, worldliness? Do we share our heart that should be 100% devoted to the Savior and to his gospel and share it with things of the world? And uh, so that's something that I think helps us to understand a little bit about what the Ephesians were going through in having lost their first love. Now, it's not hard to really understand how the Ephesian saints could uh, have lost their love. It it suits the conditions in Ephesus very well. After all, Ephesus was the home of the temple of Diana, who is known in Greek as Artemis. She was the Roman fertility goddess, uh, considered to be the mother of all life. And so in this particular city, uh, there was a great deal of idol worship involving immorality and ritual prostitution. And young women sacrificed their virginity to the goddess of fertility. And uh, as as crazy as this sounds, you, you have these young women who subjected themselves to this ritual prostitution. And if they got pregnant from these kinds of conditions of what they were required to go through... Uh, the pregnancy actually was favored because it suggested the gods would bring favor upon their crops and there would be greater productivity as evidenced by a pregnancy that comes about through ritual prostitution. And so these are the kinds of things that were occurring in that culture, in that society at that time. And you have the images of Diana and and being produced in mass quantities here in the city of Ephesus. And these shrines uh, were represented with many breasts on the images to, again, give the idea and symbolism of fertility. And so all of these immoral rituals and the the worst possible form of unfaithfulness and disaffection from Christ are the very things that existed in this city and had influence on the members of the church. So if you want a further discussion, I've, I've only briefly touched on the things going on in the Temple of Diana and this podcast because that's really not our purpose. Uh, If you want to get more information about that, check out my uh, Come Follow Me podcast number six on November 5 of 2023 that talks in more detail about uh, the temple and what was going on and the other conditions in the city that made it fairly easy for the the saints at Ephesus to kind of fall away and uh, lose that uh, original first love that they had with the Savior. Now keep in mind that we might not have the Temple of Diana in our midst, but uh, there's a great deal of worldliness that exists that uh, pulls us away from our first love in the same way that it pulled away the Ephesian saints. And we are specifically and expressly told in the Doctrine and Covenants that we can't allow this to happen. So in Doctrine and Covenants section 59.5, it says this, quote, Wherefore I give unto them a commandment, saying thus, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, mind, and strength. And in the name of Jesus Christ, thou shalt serve him. Close quote. 
And so, as you can see, we have the same kind of admonition that exists for us today. And notice here, the measure in which we are supposed to love God is with all the heart, might, mind, and strength. For it's, it's using the, the symbolic world number four and as, as an expression that we are to love with our whole being. Nothing left out. So that's that's the nature of uh, the love that uh, we need to have and that was lost among the Ephesian saints. So let's now turn our attention to Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 5, which states, quote, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place." except thou repent, close quote. Now these words, remember from whence thou art fallen, of course, harkens back to the concepts of the fall of Lucifer in the premortal existence and the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. So the Ephesians suffered kind of an analogous fall from grace when they left their first love, who is Jesus Christ. And uh, Elder McConkie had this to say about this concept of falling from grace. Quote, To fall from grace is to turn from such a course of obedience so that the goodness of God departs and the former saint is left to his own power and strength. God is no longer pleased with his conduct and no longer pours out upon him special blessings. For all faithful members of the church, the revealed counsel is, quote-unquote, there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Therefore, let the church take heed and pray always, lest they fall into temptation, close quote. As we think of these words by Elder McConkie, we have to recognize that we grow in grace through faithfulness. We fall from grace through unfaithfulness. So now the Ephesians find themselves in the position of having fallen from grace, having lost their first love or their ardent zeal uh, in favor of the Savior, and it's time for them to repent after first recognizing, of course, the nature of their fallen condition. It's truth for all of us. Salvation is impossible without repentance. And so that process begins with the recognition that we have an attitude or an action that is out of harmony with God's teachings. We must remember, literally keep on remembering what was lost. We have to consciously have before our mind this idea of loving the Lord and being ardent in our affection toward him and not having that as something that's kind of <laughs> in the back recesses of our mind, if you will. We have to awaken our thoughts that prompt us to hearken, heed, pray, and obey. And so having done so, the Ephesians essentially had to resume their first works, which are going to be an outward expression of what we're truly feeling on the inside. It's kind of like um, when we go to the uh, temple and we receive our temple garments that are to be worn as an outward expression 
of our inward commitment. And so this is kind of a, a, a good time to ask ourselves, how are we doing in that regard? Are we finding excuses not to wear our garments? Because if we are, then that may also suggest that we are finding excuses not to be completely ardent in our affection toward the Savior. But on the other hand, if we find every excuse to wear our garments as instructed, um, that then tends to be an evidence of our inward commitment and our love for the Savior. And so we have to perform with zeal um, in all that we're doing uh, in, with regard to all of the covenants that we make in the, in the temple and uh, outside the temple as well. So it's not uh, merely that we have to, like the Ephesians, feel the first feelings that they had for their love for the Savior, they have to do the works flowing from them. And so it is with us also. We can say that we love the Lord, but if we don't really do anything that manifests that kind of charitable love, that agape kind of love, then uh, our words ring somewhat hollow, I, I think is the best way to probably put it. And so the, the Ephesians, of course, had to be motivated by a renewed love of the Savior. And if you truly have that love, that will be the source of thing that will have the works flowing from that. Um, it's kind of like the old saying, too, you know, uh, Brigham Young was once asked, what do you do if you don't feel like praying? <laughs> His answer was, well, you pray until you feel like it. And I think a little bit of that has to do with this love that we might not have as much as we should. Well, what do you do if you don't really feel a love for the Savior? Then you work and you serve and you do everything that uh, doesn't come naturally. And as you do so, it's going to respawn that love that you had, that you can't have service without love. Those two are kind of integrally related. And it, your works might initially be a little bit um, less than ardent. Um, you're doing it out of a sense of duty, but as you continue to do it, you'll get to the point where you do it because of your love for the Savior. And so they're, they're somewhat synergistic in that respect. Now the next phrase in this verse talks a little bit about the, the fact that the Savior will come unto thee quickly. And this verse is repeated in many different scriptures, including the book of Revelation. And it can mean different things depending on the context. And so in this particular context, um, we need to look at that as different from some of the other contexts in which it is used. And so essentially, on the one hand, this phrase, I will come quickly, is an assurance of comfort in many cases. It's also tied to judgments that will come quickly at the time of the second coming. But here it's a slightly different meaning altogether. Here it is related to the timing of judgments in the immediate future for those who are unrepentant after having lost their first love. So this timing of I will come relates to those in Ephesus at the time of those then living. And so if we look at the history of Ephesus, which I'm not going to detail in any great measure because I did it in my podcast from November 5th, is Ephesus eventually was desolated. It's filled with ruins of judgments that came quickly, anciently, among these people. And it came because the Ephesians never did fully repent of their lost love for the Savior Jesus Christ and for the gospel. And so 
in the absence of that kind of love, then we don't have the assurance of blessings that would otherwise accompany us in our journeys. So essentially we have no evidence that the church at Ephesus ever did uh, repent. And so the threatenings that are given in these verses here in uh, the second chapter of Revelation ultimately were fulfilled. And one of the threats, of course, that was made specifically, it says that the, the candlestick would be removed out of its place unless they repented. Now, this is a severe threat that should not have been neglected by the church because losing the light of Christ would accompany the loss of the church in that city. You have the loss of ordinances, you have the loss of the ministers, you have a famine for the Word of God, and you have the absence and loss of the presence of the Lord. So the candlestick that is being talked about here is the church. And for further discussion on that topic, check out my podcast dealing with Revelation chapter 1 verses 19 through 20, which I did on the 27th of January. But the candlestick is the church. And so the threat to remove the candlestick is the threat to remove the church. And when that candlestick is removed, it allows Christ's adversaries, Satan, his enemies, to disperse and scatter the saints. It allows false teachers who can cause divisions and schisms, heresies and apostasies within the church. And so Christ forsakes the church and will not walk among them any longer. And this spiritual presence is lost and they stand rejected of the Lord. What a what a wholly un unfathomable kind of position to find yourself in, to not have the church only because you yourselves drifted away from the Lord and lost your love for him. Now, this, this is something that foreshadows things that can and frankly will happen in the church today. And so the Ephesian saints... Uh, basically had their love of many that waxed cold. And this is a statement and comment that we find in Doctrine and Covenants section 4527, which states, quote, And the love of men shall wax cold, and iniquity shall abound. Close quote. Now, we think of that a lot of times as something, oh, that's things happening outside the church. That's a societal problem that we don't really need to be concerned with because we have the church and uh, we have love um, and there is no iniquity. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, that's true. We do have these things, but I'm not so sure that the kind of love that we have is as ardent as it needs be to the point that we can say that the love is not waxing cold even within the church. And this kind of contradicts what the Savior warned when he said in Matthew 24, 21, quote, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, close quote. And that's consistent with this concept that we have these grievous wolves that come in and attack the saints. And there's this absence of charity among our members to the point that it can be said that the uh, the love of men and mankind for our brothers and sisters wanes and starts to wax cold. And, and that's the conditions that existed when the church was lost in, uh, the, ch in the city of Ephesus. Now, keep in mind also, the Lord has said this in Doctrine and Covenants section 135, and so this kind of gives us a modern perspective here. He says, quote, For I am no respecter of persons, and will that all men shall know that the day speedily cometh. The hour is not yet, 
but is nigh at hand when peace shall be taken from the earth and the devil shall have power over his own dominion, close quote. And so essentially this is telling us that uh, we're moving toward that uh, time period very quickly. And in DNC 99.5 it states, quote, And behold and lo, I come quickly to judgment to convince all of their ungodly deeds which they have committed against me as it is written of men in the volume of the book, close quote, referring, of course, to the Doctrine and Covenants. And so uh, this kind of thing that happened among the Ephesians, where they eventually lost the, uh, the candlestick or the church because they failed to repent, they were overcome by apostasy, and it was nearly universal in the Roman Empire as the first century came to a close. And there will be a latter-day apostasy, and so this we know because it's predicted, uh, among other places, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, which says, quote, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, meaning our time, some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Close quote. So those are predictions about our day, and you can already see how they're coming um, to pass, and uh, this prophecy by Paul is being fulfilled. Uh, now, the difference is this. There was an apostasy in the primitive church that was universal. Uh, that is to say, on a worldwide basis, there was no true church that existed upon the church after the apostasy from the general church and the primitive church became general in all the world. It was a spiritual darkness to the point that there was no true church upon the earth until the time of the restoration of the gospel in the 1820s. That means now we live today after the restoration in the latter days, uh, but we're still going to be subject to certain groups and certain individuals that will fall away from the church. This is predicted in the uh, in the visions of Daniel, where he said in Daniel 7.20, quote, And he, meaning Satan, shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change the times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a times and times and the dividing of time, close quote. Now, this again is talking about our time and Satan's power that he has in these last days to wear out the saints of the Most High, meaning members of the true church of Jesus Christ. The thing that he does not have power to do is to completely wipe the church off the face of the map as he did in ancient times when the candlestick was taken out of the midst of the Ephesians and every other church that remained uh, at that time. Now we know this because of the prophecy in Daniel 2.44, which states, quote, And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, 
and it shall stand forever, close quote. So what we learn from this, and this of course is uh, the imagery that uh, Daniel was talking about from the dream of uh, Nebuchadnezzar that had that great uh, statue with the head of gold and so on and so forth, and, and then the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands that eventually fills the whole earth. That's what we're talking about here is the uh, restored kingdom of Jesus Christ upon the earth that cannot be destroyed. It will survive until the end of the second coming and beyond, which differs from the type of outcome for the uh, early church in the uh, time of the primitive church at the time of Christ. And so uh, the good news is that um, if we have lost our love for the Savior, our first love, in other words, the honeymoon is over, we still have a chance to repent, and we can do so in our individual lives. And the church is never going to succumb to the problems that beset the Ephesian saints in the uh, ancient church because we have the assurance the church will survive. Uh, but individuals may not necessarily survive. And that's why we have to be alert and cautious and looking back to say, what happened to these Ephesian saints? Exactly what did they do to lose their zeal and to drift away from their first love? Because I think I have uh, some things I could learn from that. And as you do so, then you can be part of the church that will stand fast and stand forever. Uh, and no one will be able to break you individually into pieces or consume you uh, as, uh, as Satan would like to do. And so it's a kind of a question uh, as we come now to uh, the second coming, wh which side of the history are you going to be on? Uh, and that's going to be determined on... Uh, whether you have forsaken your first love as did the Ephesians. Now, some people reading the book of Revelation kind of want to skip the whole discussion about the seven churches, and they, they want to, let's get on with the good stuff talking about the latter days. And if you don't recognize that the seven churches are talking about the latter days and your future in particular, then uh, you've misunderstood the meaning of these two chapters in the book of Revelation. So I, I hope that this uh, gives you some food for thought uh, and allows you to, to kind of reflect a little bit upon the relationship that you have with the Savior. I hope that you do have an ardent love for the Savior and for his gospel. I think the, the fact that you're listening to this podcast is probably a pretty good indication that you do. So as always, uh, we find ourselves preaching to the choir. But nevertheless, perhaps you can uh, share this with uh, one of your friends. <laughs> and uh, I thank you for listening, subscribing, and uh, sharing. And uh, thanks to Jenna Daly for the technical help. I'll see you next week when we're going to be talking about uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, a single verse where we're going to talk about Christ hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I've, I've talked a little bit about before. And uh, just uh, by way of spoiler alert, uh, the Nicolaitans are alive and well in the latter days. And so uh, it's a podcast that uh, I think will help you out. So I look forward to seeing you.